All right, let me pray and we'll get stuck in. Father God, thank you so much for your word. And thank you for examples in your word of God-like people. People like Stephen, who was Christ-like in so many ways. Help us now as we look at his story, that small moment in some respects, but a big moment in church history, to to look at him and to to realise who he is, what made him Christ-like, and therefore to be like Stephen, to live like Stephen, to speak like Stephen, and then to be even willing to die like Stephen dies. Help me to be clear, help all of us to have minds that are open and ready to hear from you, our hearts, our bodies, keen to know what it is that you have to say to us so we can grow in our love and service of you until the day that Christ Jesus returns, you take us to dwell with him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. Could we just have a little more light? Yes, thank you out there for people to see. Stories. We're looking today at Acts chapter 6 from about verse 8 until the the beginning of Acts chapter 8. All right. We are going to cover all of that verse by verse. No, not verse by verse. Not today anyway. Next time. Stories. Do you guys like stories? I was fortunate enough that I got to go and speak at the Frog Crew, which is our little um, years four to six crew that meet together every Friday. And I got to tell the story of Joseph. And as soon as I started telling the story, you should have seen these kids' eyes light up. They engage with stories, don't they? All of us engage with stories. It's actually been shown that when a story is told and somebody's engaging with it, your whole brain is like lighting up. It seems to engage all the different parts of your brain. It's why stories are so powerful. Stories bring us together, don't they? Shared stories, our story. They they communicate meaning. They communicate purpose for people, don't they? They connect us with one another. They, They draw us into what has been in the past, what we hope for now, and then also what's going to happen into the future. Stories are incredibly powerful things. And our God is a storytelling God. I think it's actually a big reason why stories are so powerful. And he tells the most incredible, glorious, wonderful story that every single one of us are actually a part of. And when this story is told correctly, it has an impact. Some people accept the story and join in being part of that. Others, though, it's, it's less than positive. Much, much less than positive. It actually means that they want to stone or kill the people who are telling the story. Stephen tells the story, the Christian story, and it ends up getting him killed. Spoiler alert, gave it away already, yeah? Like, this is intense. This is radical. This is Christianity. Is he so convicted by this story, he is willing to die for it. If you've been journeying with us, we've been jumping into the book of Acts, starting at chapter 1, and I've loved it. You guys? Yeah, you've been coming through this thing. It's been a good series so far. I hope this book is wonderful. And my hope is that if you haven't been keeping up, jump back into the podcast, get on there and make sure that you do catch up and, and know what's happening in this book. It's good for us to get that teaching. But how have you been feeling throughout it? Comfortable? Maybe a bit more confronted? Apathetic? I hope absorbed. Because as we've sort of journeyed through the beginnings of the church, when the Spirit comes and it sparks this church to begin, you read our story, because this is our story, right? It would be crazy to think Christians are at risk of being complacent or comfortable or conforming individuals in society, right? It is radical being a Christian, being caught up in this story. A story worth telling, a story worth living for, 
even being willing to die for. And I know it's Sunday morning, it's cold outside, and you wanted to come in here, hunker up with a really, really nice scarf and stay warm. So this question's jarring, sure. But what would you be willing to die for? Like, really? To give your life for? This? That's the call. It's a call that I have to constantly think to myself about. Like, I'm a selfish guy deep down. Most of us are selfish people, aren't we? What are we willing to live for? Because this is what it says. The the Scriptures say that we are meant to live for and be willing to die for this story because Christianity is radical and marvellously so because of what this story can do. It can transform the entire world. (laughs) Like, we get that, don't we? We get to bring the story that gives purpose and meaning to all of humanity, to all of time. It can connect us to our past, give us a, a reason for the now and a definite for the future. That is what this story gives us. You see, Stephen tells a story, ends up getting him killed. And this moment in Acts is actually, it's like a pivot point. Because from here, after this, we see the scattering of all of these people of God out into various areas, out of Jerusalem. People like Stephen are scattered, and where they go, what happens? The story goes with them. And so the gospel goes forward wonderfully. Just just to see that, jump to the end in your Bibles, Acts chapter 8, verse 1. So, Saul was there approving of the killing of all of these Christians, particularly of Stephen in the name of the Lord. And on that day, it says, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles, so just the apostles, the rest of the church, remember there was thousands, 3,000, 5,000, probably more now, were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. You know why this is so significant? Flip the numbers. You've got 8-1, go now to 1-8. Isn't that convenient? Jump to 1-8. I love when things like that work. What did 1, chapter 1, verse 8 say? You will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. And to the ends, it's happening, right? This is it. The message, the story is going out. And it's because people are living and being willing to speak of the message of the story. Right? They're willing to live for it, to die for it, to speak this message. People like Stephen. And so today... I want you to be like Stephen. It's funny, I thought Steve might be here. He's he's not here. That would have been. Are there any Stevens in the house? There, beat. Not that exact man. All right? You don't all have to dress the same, look the same as him. But this man, and again, not dressed the same. I don't want you to become like a, a Jewish individual. No, I'm wanting us to look at what he's like. The man, not the man, the myth, the legend, but the man, the message, and the final moment. That's what we're going to step through. I want us to be a people who live like Stephen, who are willing to speak like Stephen and who therefore are also willing to die like Stephen dies. So let's jump in. Let's have a look at the man to begin with. Back in chapter 6, verse 8, we see the man. There, verse 8, it says, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed wonders, great wonders and signs among the people. Now, as soon as you get there, it says, Now Stephen, it sounds like you're kind of meant to know who he is, right? And we should. If you just jump back to verse 5, what's happened there is that there was a a dispute within between the Hebraic and the Greek women and they've sorted this out by assigning a bunch of deacons. And the deacons in verse 5, here they are, this proposal pleased the whole bunch that they might have these deacons who can minister this way and they chose Stephen, a man full of the faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip and, and all the rest. All these people who are full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. And so we know this man and so listen to how he is described. 
full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. And verse 3, back in the previous chapter, all of the brothers are described very similarly. Have a look there, verse 3. It says, people choose them among you, people who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. Full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, full of faith. And what's this guy doing? What's Stephen doing? Well, he's going around performing great wonders, signs amongst the people, preaching. He is ministering, just like the apostles were, this man who is full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. Now, what happens when that happens in this time? Persecution arises. And in verse 9, opposition did arise, didn't it? So, verse 9, opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen. Now, the freedmen were just a particular group who took issue with Stephen and what he was saying. I won't get into who they are, but why? Why did they have issue? We're not told yet. We'll get to that. How does he respond? Verse 10, he responds by preaching. And they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Stephen, empowered by the Spirit, is standing amidst all this opposition. Stephen, a man full of faith, full of the Spirit, boldly proclaiming in life, in word, in deed. He is a Spirit-filled individual. He is a Christian. That's what's being described here, right? Because where does he get all of this from? Where does he get this conviction from to be able to stand um, uh, up against opposition? From his deep connection to the Lord, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom. How would he have all of that? We're about to see it when you see, hear his sermon. He knows God's Word, the story, so deeply. Please, at some point later this week, read the full speech, particularly before you get to Connect Group if you're studying this this week. Here is a man who is so on fire for the Lord, and he's a deacon, and it was one of the... They wanted to choose people like this. And so let's think about that if you're a leader in this church. Let's think about that as I'm hoping, well, today as a leadership team, we're discussing a potential next hire. We don't want somebody that's got all the amazing skills and abilities in the world. What do we want? We want somebody full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. That's what we want to to be leading us in this church, right? But this is for all of us, because where were they chosen from? From among the congregation. This is for all of us. So I'm going to say to all of you, be like Stephen. Not exactly, as I said before, and not that Stephen, but this Stephen. A Spirit-empowered Christ-like figure. And how do we do that? Well, jump with me just quickly to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Because there's this incredible passage, because it's going to link, you'll see it'll link in a moment to the idea of Moses and a face glowing. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul's been unpacking this idea of the, the wonderful glory that has come since Jesus has arrived, even greater than the glory of Moses. Paul, and that's going to be significant because you're going to see this is the same Paul at the end of this story who stood by and watched Stoven, St- Stephen, Stephen, Stephen get stoned. Have a look at verse 15 in that chapter. And verse 15, it says, Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. We're going to see that happen right in this moment. The veil will be covering their hearts. But for some, what will happen, verse 18? And we all, who with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory, being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What's he talking about? We who with unveiled faces, we who have had... It opened up to us that we can see, that we can behold, that we can look into Jesus' face and see the glory that is there. And as we do that in ever-increasing glory, what's he saying? As you know Jesus more, as you know the story more, you will glow more. 
you will be transformed into the likeness of Christ Jesus more and more and more. That's what Stephen did. And all Stephen had was the Old Testament that pointed to Jesus' life. And then the apostles who told about Jesus' life. We got so much more again, don't we? We got all of this, every single page of it, to be able to plumb, to behold, to contemplate. And I know this might feel like the, an easy go-to application. It, it'll be an easy go-to application when it's happening all the time. But the Spirit-filled Word, the Bible, should be oozing out of us, right? This is our radical transforming tool that makes us glow. And it does sound easy, but we have to know. And I won't mention any names, but it was so cool at Frog when I was telling the story. As I said, do you guys know Joseph? I told the story of Joseph and his coat and the way that his brothers, 11 brothers, the older ones, all attacked him. And it was so cool as one kid was like, yes, yes, I know this story. One thought I was talking about Joseph and Mary initially, that was okay. But this, this other boy jumped up and he was able to say, I know this story. And he told me the little bits and pieces. Our kids need to know it. You need to know it. We need to have it oozing out of us so that we understand this is the story that explains humanity. And if, until we start to actually grasp that, we're not going to be able to go out and be like Stephen, are we? Because when it becomes your story, it gives you your purpose. When it becomes your story, it makes you grow and glow. Our lives can be like Stephen. And so, how was he chosen? How would he have been chosen? I wonder this in some respects. As in, do they have some sort of test to figure out who was full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith? Was it like diabetes? You get a little, you know, the blood test and they're able to check that. Was it a breathalyzer? You're full of the Spirit today, Stephen. No, definitely wasn't a breathalyzer. What about a pregnancy test? No. <laughs> they ain't going around doing that. I wondered um, in recent times, you know those crazy fangle-dangle um, COVID temperature tests? Where you just walk up and it can test your temperature? Do they have one of those where it's just like, this is the guy, full of the Holy Spirit? No, none of that. What was it? It was his life, his words and his works. What he said, what he did. You looked at him, you listened to him. At all times, in all places, it was displayed in everything that he did. Be like Stephen, please. How great, how great would a church be filled with Stephens? Again, not that one. But that would still be great. <laughs> but people like this Stephen. So deep in God's Word, it is deep in us. So full of faith that we can go through every wave that rocks us. So full of God's Spirit that we are just powering on, longing to see this Gospel story go out at all times, in all places, overflowing, glowing with the fruit of the Spirit, of love, of joy, of peace, of patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and yes, self-control. Don't forget that one. Watch, please watch Stephen as he lives, as he speaks, as he dies, so that we can be the same. Do you know the thing I find crazy about 2 Corinthians 3? That's written by Paul, who later on in this story, if you flick to chapter 8, you hear beginning of that chapter, and Saul approved of their killing, same guy. The guy that's standing there approving, he's actually standing with all of the people who are taking off their coats to stone Stephen. He's standing there watching that happen, and he wrote those words. You know what's crazy about that? I wonder, and I don't speculate too much to try to jump into the minds of authors like this, but I wonder, as he wrote it, did he picture his brother Stephen? 
as he powerfully tells the people the correct way to understand this story. His radical brother, maybe in his mind, his faithful, spirit-filled brother pointing to Christ. Why might I think he thinks that way? Because Stephen's face was glowing just like Moses's. Stephen, the man who was just like Jesus, who stood, was opposed just like Jesus was. It's because he cops it, doesn't he? Have a look why he cops it. And this is important for us to understand. The reason why I want us to understand why he was opposed is because then that really feeds into the message. That's helpful for us to wrestle with too, all right? So he cops opposition, and it shouldn't really surprise us anymore. This is what happens. If you're a Christian, it's going to happen. And we already know that it's happened in verse 9, but now we start to understand how they oppose and what for they oppose. Firstly, the accusation, what for? What is it? I'll come back to how. What is really important is that we understand the way he tells the story, his message, links with what he was opposed for. So have a look at verses 13b and 14. This fellow, they say, never stops speaking against this holy place, so the temple, and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses handed down to us. What are they accusing him of? They're accusing him of being against the temple and against the law and Moses as a result. The two absolute foundations of Judaism, the things that they hold so, so strong. This is sacrilege. This is blasphemy. And how? How do they get to this point to be able to accuse him of this and rally a crowd to stone him? We'll have a look at verses 11 to 13. They secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they go behind his back and stab him. And so they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified that statement. There's progress, isn't there? Some secret slander over here that progresses to some false witnesses over there that'll end in a stoning of an individual. Sounds familiar though, doesn't it? That sort of a progress. I remember a bloke that I read about once. Stirred up the people a little bit. They produced false witnesses for him. Sounding familiar at all? Who spoke radical truth claims. Who spoke with wisdom, astounding multitudes. He worked miracles. He challenged the leaders thinking of the day. He challenged the church of the day, really. Leaders who didn't know what to do with him. His name was Jesus. And it ended on a bloody cross. It ended in violence. Spoiler alert. Well, it's pretty obvious now. This results in violence too, doesn't it? And this is happening, guys. This same process is happening all across the world still today. Maybe not here in Australia. But where the Spirit-empowered message goes out, the same pattern happens, where people don't want that thing to happen, and so they will produce falsehood, stir it up, and then violence. It's called the persecuted church for a reason, because they are actually persecuted, and there's places all across our globe. And we will come to a point where we will pray for as a church more holistically. But let me encourage you, if you don't know anything about the persecuted church, Google Voice of the Martyrs, Google the persecuted church, check out the watch lists and see what it is that people live through because they are willing to die for this story. Some of them have. Some of them may be. In fact, by the end of this sermon, there will be people who have died for this story. And so we have to wrestle, don't we? Jesus' followers should expect some of this opposition. And I've told you this the last few weeks. We have to wrestle with it and it shows up in the Scripture, so I have to talk about it. But what was it that he was accused for? Because it's fairly heavy stuff. He was against the temple and he was against the law, the very foundations of his religion. Verse 15, though, look what happens. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, waiting for what's going to happen. And they saw that his face was like the face 
of an angel, glowing. With what they are accusing him of, this is incredible, because there's a story back in Exodus 33, 34 about Moses meeting with God, and every time he'd come out of the tent having met with him, what happened? His face glowed. His whole body really glowed. And what is Stephen trying to He's trying to point, actually, them to the one who spoke, verse 37, Moses himself, who said these words, this is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He's trying to say, Moses talked about Jesus. He's going to show them, I'm not wrong here. I'm doing exactly what the God of Moses would want me to be doing. That the true, the ultimate, the story, the Christian story is all about Jesus. And it's this story that gets him killed. Let's have a look at the story, the message, because he doesn't hold any punches. And yet some people, if you read the whole thing, some scholars have thought the only reason that he got stoned was because he preached for too long and got bored, then everybody got bored. And it was their way of shutting him up, which sounds a little bit rough, doesn't it? This isn't a boring ramble. What he does is he takes them through their own story. He makes sure that they have a... And that's why it offends so much that they react. Because he's, he's not attacking, but he's correcting their very identity, their very purpose. You think about doing that today. People will come. They come back scared that you're stealing from them something when actually you're trying to point them to the truth. He shows them, you've got it wrong. And what he is saying is so, so right. Those who want to follow Moses as God, if you want to follow him correctly, you follow Jesus, is what he says. You delight in Jesus. He isn't against the temple or the law. He's, a, he's all about the temple and the law, but their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus, which means, he says to them, you are the ones who are rejecting him. He takes the story and shows them and flips it. And it's actually brilliant. This guy is brilliant. How could you get bored with this? What you are saying about me is actually what you're doing. So remember the accusations against the temple and against the law. He says the temple does not equal God's only space for presence. His presence is with his people and the world is his domain. And then he says the law, you are not keeping it. <laughs> So you're actually against it and accepting Jesus and obeying Jesus is the only way and Christ alone is the only way that you can actually have acceptance from the God that you want to worship. And so let's start with the first one. God's presence is with his people no matter where. And what we're going to do is we're going to cover 50 verses right now. You ready? Yeah, good. What he wants to say is it's not just about the land. It's not just about, let's just say, 2234 and the temple in a borough. I'll use those two as my illustration for today. How's that sound? So it's not just about the land of Israel, 2234, and the temple in a borough. Let's even just go with the pack. And so how does he do that? Have a look. Verse 2, he says, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. He respectfully addresses them. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. And as soon as they hear that name, they'd all start singing, Father Abraham had many sons. They know this guy. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. And so they would have been happy at that point. But then... He goes on, while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Now, those two places are key. You see, Mesopotamia, he's saying God appeared to him there. It's not even the land. That's like going south, south of Southo from 2234. You're outside, the, or that's going north of Bankstown. You're going over the river. You're outside of the land. He's saying before you were even in the land, before there was even a temple, before he came to that space, God was with him and spoke to them. And then when he left, he says, he continues to detail it. God sent him and God promised him the land that you guys now claim. 
God's presence was with him before he was in the land, and let alone the temple. He was there. God's presence is everywhere is the point. And he keeps the story rolling in verse 6, because he says, God spoke to him in this way, For 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. Is that story sounding familiar? It sounds like Egypt, right? But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, Egypt, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. He's talking about the slavery in Egypt. So was there a temple in Egypt? There's lots of temples in Egypt, but not his not the one to Yahweh. And what about when they were taken out? I mean, he's, he's kind of saying, have you read this story, guys? Like, this is your story. Do you know this story? This is radical for them, though. It's changing their minds completely, and the punch is coming. Because who was next? Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Joseph. And verse 9, you see, because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him. Remember the story? Remember the fortune where he went from the pit to the prison to being part of, being the prince of Egypt. God was with him and he used that to say God was with him. Are you hearing this, guys? And continued to be each and every step of the way. And in verses 20 to 44, he tells the story of Moses. He tells the beginning of the story, the baby in the basket, Pharaoh's daughter, the killing of an Egyptian by Moses. God was with him through all of these things. He comes, verse 30. Have a look at verse 30. What's this talking about? After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. In the bush he was there. He appeared to him. And he continues this boring story, detailing all the time in Egypt, all of Moses' time in Egypt. Then in Midian, the 40-year-old that went to an 80-year-old, 40 years in the wilderness, God forsaken territory, the wilderness, and there was God with Moses. And then when he went back into Egypt, and then when he leads the people out into the same wilderness, he is with them the whole time. God is with them, and he doesn't have a temple. Maybe pictures of pillars of cloud or pillars of fire and cloud are now sparking in their minds. Oh yeah, God was kind of with them in those moments, wasn't he? And sure, the tabernacle, he talks about that, but before that, before there was the tent, before there was a temple, where is God during all of this? He's like, I'm not against the temple, guys. That accusation is just wrong. The temple was never the point. It was never God's presence. The world is God's sanctuary. And think about what was said when the temple was built, he says to them. Verses 45 to 50, if you want to keep following along. Surely you remember David and his son Solomon. Solomon, the one who built the very temple. And what did he say, verse 48, when he built it? The Most High God does not live in houses made by human hands. This is your Solomon, guys. And as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? Or where will, you re- where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? What a God that is. I want that God. Stephen's speech is saying, it's not about the temple. I'm not against the temple. The temple is a great expression of God's presence, but the world is his sanctuary. I just covered 50 verses. We did all right, didn't we? Stephen's speech, he may not have known it as he was doing it. And we may not even realize this as we look at it. it. It's foundational for the church. And it was so radical in that moment. It's right, but it rocked them so much they're ready to pick up rocks, right? 
Because this is blasphemy and sacrilege to a Jew because of what he's suggesting about the way that God functions outside of the land and the temple. It's why Jews still grieve so much about their temple today. And this is different for us, but I think a reminder for God's people in God's place, 2234, the Shire, God's country apparently. God isn't restricted to our temple, Inabara, let's say, to our nation, Menai, 2234. His presence will be with his people. And maybe that's something that we continually need to remind ourselves of, otherwise we can become a little bit closed like these Jewish leaders. I'm not suggesting that is the case, I don't know yet, but we could be. And we forget the fact that there is space over that bridge and over that bridge for us to continue to proclaim the gospel. That there is nations right across the world that haven't even heard this gospel yet. Unreached people groups. We need to take this message to them because this whole world is God's. And they all need to hear that, right? Stephen tips them over the edge in just a moment though. Because the next hit is coming when he addresses them about the law. He says, those who reject the story, this real and true story, they're actually the issue. And he points the finger straight at them. You see, in verse 39, just jump back to verse 39. He's already addressed, if you were listening to the whole sermon, he's addressed Israel's historic sin. He says, verse 39, but our ancestors refused to obey him. You know the story of Israel? They constantly disobey, are judged or exiled, and then they just can't seem to do it. Instead, he says, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. So when they were leaving Egypt, they wanted to head back to that God, to that place where they thought they would have refuge. Now he says... This is your sin too, leaders. And that's what gets him killed. Verse 51, have a look. You stiff-necked people. Woo! That's a word used often by God to his people, Israel, when they've sinned and turned astray. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. That sounds like a strange phrase. Circumcision was the sign that those people were part of the people of God, that they were cleaned, they were part. What they're saying is, you don't get this. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Now, these are actually words that Moses uttered too. Not only are they words that God would use consistently for his people, but they're words that Moses uttered to Israel when they were wanting to turn back, when they were wanting to go back to Egypt. He describes them them as Moses did. And these leaders, they actually did have the Scriptures oozing. Many of them would have been able to recite most of the Old Testament, those first five books in particular, the Pentateuch, if not all of it, quite comfortably. And so they know when they hear that, you're using Moses' words against us. And he goes next level because he says, you've done worse. You rejected the one that it was all pointing to, verse 52. Have a look, verse 52. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one and now you have betrayed and murdered him. Guilty of killing Jesus, which means you're under God's judgment. And he highlights their guilt in verse 53. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it, you should know better. This is no boring speech with an obnoxious ending, is it? Stephen tells the story as it should be understood for these men and it gets him killed. Kind of makes sense when you get to that point, doesn't it, that he gets killed for this. We must, though, tell the same story, right? But we have to tell it like Stephen did. Because actually he's very, very clever and he's, he's brilliant, really. What did he know? He knew the scriptures, so he knew the story deeply. And I've already, I'm not going to go again on that. We get that, right? So please do it. (laughs) But he knew the people he was talking to. 
He knew he was speaking to, who he was speaking to. And that's so key, because we don't speak to Jewish leaders anymore. We don't actually speak to many people who know the story much at all. We don't speak to lots of people who care that much about what God has to say about their identity and their purpose. And so we need to start to contextualize, to listen to the questions people have and bring the answers through the lens of the story. We have to unpack our audience a little bit, right? Who? Who are the Shire folk? And I'm not talking about Bilbo. Who are the people that live in 2234? How, how do they think? How do they function? What do they care about? What are then the accusations then that they might bring, like these guys did, to the story that we have? They have a temple. They have a place where they think worship is meant to go. And they have a law, a way of living that they think is best and right and proper. And they will defend those things like they are foundational because they are for their lives, aren't they? Why? Because they all have a story too, don't they? Everyone has a story that they believe themselves to have been written into or that they are writing a script that determines their lives. And if you don't know the people around you, what it is that they live for, there's no way that we can communicate the story in a way that's going to be helpful, that's going to force them to have to respond at some point. Live like Stephen, speak like Stephen. So that means we need to be open to conversations. It is a powerful story. Stories are powerful, aren't they? Next week, I hope to apply this a little bit more. But for now, please listen. Hear why and what it is that people live for. Live like Stephen. And then, when you've done that and you get it, you get to speak. But that also means you might need to be willing to die like Stephen. What are you willing to die for? Like, really? Who, maybe? Who are you willing to die for? So I reckon some of you might be willing to die for family members, kids. Somebody's maybe a stranger. What about for Jesus? Like, is there anything? Sometimes I have to ask myself the question. And really, it's confronting, isn't it? Stephen, in his final moment, we learn from him again. We want to be like our brother Stephen. Listen to what happens. This story has a very cutting end. Verse 54, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious. What did they hear? You've rejected our God. They were furious. You've rejected your purpose. You don't have the right identity. They were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open. And the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of God, those words will become even more significant when we look at Daniel. At this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Words that sound familiar, I hope. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. He was like Jesus until the end, wasn't he? He knew the joy it was to suffer for Jesus' name. Just those words, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Nearly identical to the words Jesus cried upon the cross. And Lord, do not hold this again. Don't hold this sin against them. They don't know what they're doing. <laughs> Same as the words that Jesus uttered upon the cross. You ever seen that um, movie, The Joker, The Dark Knight? The Joker in The Dark Knight, the Batman one. It's one of my favourite movies of all time. I saw it like 11 times at the cinemas. Heath Ledger's in it, and he's fantastic. And he has this moment, this scene, and this is heavy, so I'm just warning you, <laughs> where he, he has a knife 
And he asks the police officer, do you want to know why I use a knife? And he explains how it's slow. And in those last moments of somebody's life, you get to, to save them because you get to actually see what it is revealed in a person when they die. People have said that a lot throughout history. Then in their last moments, people really reveal their true selves. Stoning was not a quick process. It was not an impersonal process. It took stone after stone up close. It was horrible, but it also revealed what a person was like. Saul was standing there. Saul who later becomes, well not becomes Paul, Saul who is Paul, who wrote most of our New Testament, approving of this. But he was also watching a man named Stephen. Now, I'm not telling you this because it almost does feel like too much. I always get to describing stoning and think, maybe I shouldn't. But I tell you that also because there are people who suffer the same thing today in different cultures for different reasons, but also for being Christians. How could they for being Christians? You know who also was actually dragged out of city and stoned? The same bloke that stood by and held the coats. Paul, later on in Acts. How? Well, because he became like Stephen full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. He had the same vision, in a way, that we can have. Verse 55, full of the Holy Spirit, looking up to heaven and seeing the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That vision is just as real for us today, right? How do we live like Stephen? How do we speak like Stephen? Even die like Stephen? We know that story, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all this. That yes, he died, but he rose again and he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty right now. That can give you great confidence. And this is the reality now and shapes the reality for the future, no matter who you are. Now, we may not get the same physical glimpse, but this is what the story tells us. It was true and is blasphemous to a Jew. It's ignorance to many, many, many people today. Outrageous make-believe and silly fantasies. And that's why the accusations will come and the opposition will be there. But it is radically glorious for all who believe, right? The most powerful story that has ever been told and ever will be told. The story that will continue to transform the world until this world is renewed and perfect the way that it should be. And that only happens if people like you and me get scattered all over the place and preach the word, tell the story wherever it is we go, just like Stephen. Not that Stephen. (laughs) But this, Stephen, I want you to come back next week because we're going to talk more about how we do share that good news. But now I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. We're going to sing in a moment of how it is that Christ is ours both now and forevermore because of this story. Let me pray. Father God, thank you so much for an example like Stephen. Please help us to live like him. Please help us to speak like him. Please help us to be a people who are even willing to die like him because we know that our life is secure in Christ Jesus, that we will be with you forevermore, the one who came to this earth, who lived the perfect life, who died the perfect death, who rose to glory and is now seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and is Lord over all. What a wonderful thing it is to know this story, to live in this story, and to get to share this story. Please make us your people who do that, scattered all over the place, throughout 2, 2, 3, 4 and beyond, to the glory and praise of your name. Amen.